Welcome to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, works, and influences of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. This is Episode 20, The Phantom Coach Part 2. Now, Part 1 of The Phantom Coach sets the stage for the supernatural events that take place in this episode. So do go back and listen to that part first. To be honest, not a lot seems to be happening in part one, but uh, part two makes a lot more sense when you have listened to part one first as background. A part one uh, tells you how the hero finds himself 20 miles from a hard-to-reach home during a snowstorm, and we are introduced to the character of the old man with his previous search for knowledge, both concrete as well as supernatural. We begin part two with the hero listening to the old man, Jacob, talking in a cabin 20 miles from the hero's home when it begins to snow. Jacob claims that the snow has stopped. Ceased, I exclaimed, starting eagerly to my feet. Oh, if it were possible. Oh, if it were only possible. But no, it is hopeless. Even if I could find my way across the moor, I could not walk 20 miles tonight. Walk 20 miles tonight, repeated my host. What are you thinking of? I'm thinking of my wife, I replied, of my young wife who does not know that I have lost my way and uh, who at this moment is breaking her heart with suspense and terror. Where is she? At Dwaldon, 20 miles away. At Dwaldon, he echoed thoughtfully. Yes, the distance, if it is true, is 20 miles. But uh, are you so very anxious to save the next six or eight hours? So very, very anxious that I would give ten guineas at this moment for a guide and a horse. Your wish can be gratified at a much less costly rate, said he, smiling. The night mail from the north, which changes Horses at Dwelling passes within five miles of this spot and will be due at a certain crossroad in about an hour and a quarter. If Jacob were to go with you across the moor and put you into the old coach road, you could find your way, I suppose, to where it joins the new one. Easily, gladly. He smiled again, rang the bell, gave the old servant his directions, and taking a bottle of whiskey and a wine glass from the cupboard in which he kept his chemicals, said, The snow lies deep, and it will be difficult walking tonight on the moor. A glass of spirits before you start? I would have ordinarily declined the spirit, but he pressed it on me, and I drank it. It went down my throat like liquid flame and almost took my breath away. It is strong, he said, but it will help keep out the cold. And now you have no moments to spare. Good night. I thanked him for his hospitality and would have shaken hands, but that he had turned away before I could finish my sentence. In another minute, I had traversed the hall. Jacob had locked the outer door behind me, and we were out on the wide, white moor. Although the wind had fallen, it was still bitterly cold. Not a star glimmered in the black vault overhead. Not a sound, save the rapid crunching of the snow beneath our feet. 
nothing disturbed the heavy stillness of the night. Jacob, not too well pleased with his mission, shambled on before in sullen silence, his lantern in his hand and his shadow at his feet. I followed with my gun over my shoulder, as little inclined for conversation as himself. My thoughts were full of my late host. His voice yet rang in my ears, his eloquence yet held my imagination captive. I remember to this day with surprise how my overexcited brain retained whole sentences and parts of sentences, troops of brilliant images and fragments of splendid reasoning in the very words in which he had uttered them. Musing thus over what I had heard and striving to recall a lost link here and there, I strode on at the heels of my guide, absorbed and unobservant. Presently, at the end, as it seemed to me, of only a few minutes, he came to a sudden halt and said, "'Yond your road! Keep the stone fence to your right hand, and you can't fall or fail of the way.' "'Then this is the old coach road.' "'Aye, tis the old coach road.' "'And how far, how far do I go before I reach the crossroads?' nigh upon three mile. I pulled out my purse, and he became more communicative. Uh, the road's a fair road enough, said he, for, for foot passengers, but was over steep and narrow for the northern traffic. You'll mind uh, where the parapet's broken away. Close again the signpost. It's never been mended since the accident. Uh, what accident? I, uh, the night mail pitched right over in the valley below. A guide, a guide fifty feet and more, just at the worst bit of road in the whole country. Horrible. How many lives were lost? All. Four were found dead, and whether two died the next morning. How long is it since this happened? Just nine year. Near the signpost, you say? Well, I will bear it in mind. Good night. Good night, sir, and thank ye. Jacob pocketed his half-crown, made a faint pretense of touching his hat, and trudged back the way he had come. I watched the light of his lantern till it quite disappeared, and then turned to pursue my way alone. This was no longer matter of the slightest difficulty, for despite the dead darkness overhead, the line of stone fence showed distinctly enough against the pale gleam of the snow. How silent it seemed now, with only my footsteps to listen to. How silent and how solitary. A strange, disagreeable sense of loneliness stole over me. I walked faster. I hummed a fragment of a tune. I cast up enormous sums in my head and accumulated them at compound interest. I did my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had but just been listening, and to some extent I succeeded. Meanwhile, the night air seemed to become colder and colder, and though I walked fast, I found it impossible to keep myself warm. My feet were like ice. 
I lost sensation in my hands and grasped my gun mechanically. I even breathed with difficulty, as though instead of traversing a quiet north country highway, I were scaling the uppermost heights of some gigantic alp. This last symptom became presently so distressing that I was forced to stop for a few minutes and lean against the stone fence. As I did so, I chanced to look back up the road, and there, to my infinite relief, I saw a distant point of light, like the gleam of an approaching lantern. I at first concluded that Jacob had retraced his steps and followed me. But even as the conjecture presented itself, a second light flashed into sight, a light evidently parallel with the first and approaching at the same rate of motion. It needed no second thought to show me that these must be the carriage lamps of some private vehicle, though it seems strange that any private vehicle should take a road professedly disused and dangerous. There could be no doubt, however, of the fact, for the lamps grew larger and brighter every moment, and I even fancied I could already see the dark outline of the carriage between them. It was coming up very fast and quite noiselessly, the snow being nearly a foot deep under the wheels. And now the body of the vehicle became distinctly visible behind the lamps. It looked strangely lofty. A sudden suspicion flashed upon me. Was it possible that I had passed the crossroads in the dark without observing the signpost, and could this be the very coach which I had come to meet? I no need to ask myself that question a second time, for here it came round the bend of the road, guard and driver, one outside passenger, and four streaming, steaming greys, all wrapped in a soft haze of light, through which the lamps blazed out like a pair of a fiery meteors. I jumped forward, waved my hand, and shouted. The mail came down at full speed and passed me. For a moment I feared that I had not been seen or heard, but it was only for a moment. The coachman pulled up, the guard muffled to the eyes and capes and comforters, and apparently sound asleep in the rumble, neither answered my hail nor made the slightest effort to dismount. The outside passenger did not even turn his head. I opened the door for myself and looked in. There were but three travelers inside, so I stepped inside, shut the door, slipped into the vacant corner, and congratulated myself on my good fortune. The atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air, and was pervaded by a singularly damp and disagreeable smell. I looked round at my fellow passengers. They were all three men and all silent. They did not seem to be asleep, but each leaned back in his corner of the vehicle as if absorbed in his own reflections. I attempted to open a conversation. How intensely cold it is tonight, I said, addressing my opposite neighbor. He lifted his head, looked at me, but made no reply. The winner, I added, seems to have begun in earnest. Although the corner in which he sat was so dim that I could not distinguish none of his features very clearly, I saw that his eyes were still turned full upon me, and yet he answered never a word. 
At any other time, I should have felt and perhaps expressed some annoyance, but at the moment I felt too ill to do either. The icy coldness of the night air had struck a chill to my very marrow, and the strange smell inside the coach was affecting me with an intolerable nausea. I shivered from head to foot, and turning to my left-hand neighbor, asked if he had any objection to an open window. He neither spoke nor stirred. I repeated the question somewhat more loudly, but with the same result. Then I lost patience and let the sash down. As I did so, the leather strap broke in my hand, and I observed that the glass was covered with a thick coat of mildew, the accumulation, apparently, of years. My attention being thus drawn to the condition of the coach, I examined it more narrowly and saw by the uncertain light of the outer lamps that it was in the last stage of dilapidation. Every part of it was not only out of repair, but in a condition of decay. The sashes splintered at a touch. The letter fittings were crusted over with mold and literally rotting from the woodwork. The floor was almost breaking away beneath my feet. The whole machine, in short, was foul with damp and had evidently been dragged from some outhouse in which it had been moldering away for years to do another day or two of duty on the road. I turned to the third passenger, whom I had not yet addressed, and hazarded one more remark. Uh, This coach, I said, is in a deplorable condition. The regular mail, I suppose, is under repair. He moved his head slowly and looked me in the face without speaking a word. I shall never forget that look while I live. I turn cold at heart under it. I turn cold at heart, even now when I recall it. His eyes glowed with a fiery, unnatural luster. His face was livid as the face of a corpse. His bloodless lips were drawn back as if in the agony of death and showed the gleaming teeth beneath. The words that I was about to utter died upon my lips, and a strange horror, a dreadful horror, came upon me. My sight had by this time become used to the gloom of the coach, and I could see with tolerable distinctness. I turned to my opposite neighbor. He too was looking at me with the same startling pallor in his face and the same stony glitter in his eyes. I passed my hand across my brow. I turned to the passenger on the seat beside my own and saw, oh heaven, uh, how shall I describe what I saw? I saw that he was no living man, that none of them were living men like myself. A pale phosphorescent light, the light of putrefaction, played upon their awful faces, upon their hair, dank with the dews of the grave, upon their clothes, earth-stained and dropping to pieces, upon their hands, which were as the hands of corpses long buried. Only their eyes, their terrible eyes, were living, and those eyes were all turned melancholy upon me. A lengthy shriek of terror, a wild, unintelligible cry for help and mercy that burst from my lips as I flung myself against the door and strove in vain to open it. In that single instant, 
Brief and vivid as a landscape beheld in the flash of summer lightning, I saw the moon shining down through a rift of stormy cloud, the ghastly signpost rearing its warning finger by the wayside, the broken parapet, the plunging horses, the black gulf began. Then the coach reeled like a ship at sea. Then came a mighty crash, a sense of crushing pain, and then darkness. It seemed as if years had gone by when I awoke one morning from a deep sleep and found my wife watching by my bedside. I will pass over the scene that ensued and give you in half a dozen words the tale she told me with tears of thanksgiving. I had fallen over a precipice, close against the junction of the old coach road and the new, and had only been saved from certain death by lighting on a deep snowdrift that had accumulated at the foot of the rock beneath. In this snowdrift, I was discovered at daybreak by a couple of shepherds who carried me to the nearest shelter and brought a surgeon to my aid. The surgeon found me in a state of raving delirium with a broken arm and a compound fracture of the skull. The letters in my pocketbook showed my name and address. My wife was summoned to nurse me, and thanks to youth and a fine constitution, I came out of danger at last. The place of my fall, I scarcely need to say, was precisely that at which a frightful accident had happened to the North Mail nine years before. I never told my wife the fearful events which I have just related to you. I told the surgeon who attended me, but he treated the whole adventure as a mere dream born of the fever in my brain. We discussed the question over and over again until we found that we could discuss it with temper no longer, and then we dropped it. Others may form what conclusions they please. I know that 20 years ago, I was the fourth inside passenger in the Phantom Coach. Check out the Celebrate Poe website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com and uh, click on the title of this episode for show notes and a transcript. And note the cover art, A Bust of Amelia Edwards. That's celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. And here again is the remaining schedule for holiday stories in this podcast series. Wednesday, December the 30th, episode 21. Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. Mr. Poe will be back to read this one. Mr. Lovecraft called Poe his god of fiction. A Thursday, December the 31st, episode 22nd. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft, also read by Edgar Allan Poe. This episode ends with some New Year's thoughts. Then Friday, January the 1st, episode 23. Another regular episode of Celebrate Poe with a fascinating look at my hometown, Stanton, Virginia, and some of the occasions the Allens visited Stanton with Little Edgar. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.